5, and uh, as we heard from Michael, it's a great passage on 5, uh, 1 through 18. And uh, by way of introduction, it's kind of interesting. There's been a long history of putting critics to the test, uh, especially critics that are of that kind of pretentious sort, you know, those kinds of critics that are like the wine tasters or the art critics. You know, wine tasters, there's one study that showed that these guys that taste wine, these ladies that kind of, you know, swirl around, smell it, do that whole thing, that when they have been blindfolded, that they can only tell the difference between red wine and white wine 50% of the time. I mean, just slightly above random chance. I feel like I could do that, you know? I mean, you know, just, okay. I mean, they can't even tell red and white apart. But then there's the art critics. There was this uh, painting that was uh, this new design, discovered artist, Alita Andre. She was featured in an Australian art exhibition. And the art critic for The Age, the magazine, said that her works were, and I quote, credible abstractions, heavily reliant on figure-ground relations, end of quote. Don't know what that means, but evidently it was amazing, and they were raving about it. Well, truth be told, turns out Alita was only 22 months old. She has taken paint, and she had smeared it around with her hands, and her mother submitted it to the art magazine as a joke. Yes, yes. Now, it's one thing if you can fool judges by passing off trash, by passing off rubbish as something really good, but it works the other way as well. Sometimes you can make the wrong call on something that's actually more valuable than you've ever imagined. Consider Dick Rowe from Decca Records. He listened to the Beatles back in the day, and he turned, he turned them down. And he actually says this to their manager, Guitar groups are on the way out, Mr. Epstein. I bet you he really regrets getting it wrong on the Beatles. Critics don't always get it right. And when they don't get it right, the critics, the judges, they become the judged. Especially for their tragic mistake. The same thing is true with Jesus. Most people today who are familiar with Jesus at least think of him and only know him on the surface. They might think, you know what, I know some famous stories. I know some of his famous sayings. And most people just think he was a really good guy, perhaps a superb teacher, but like the Beatles in the office of Dick Rowe, it would be a tragic mistake this morning for you to dismiss Jesus as merely an extraordinary man, all because you got it wrong on who he was. And we're going to see in this passage this morning, these religious critics don't get it right either. The art critics, the wine critics, the religious critics don't always get it right. And in doing so, the judges, you, the critics, become the judged. And so John's going to show us in our section here, John 5 through 10, that's kind of one whole unit, John 5 through 10, the chapters, are really about who Jesus is and why he came and what is he going to do. So our series in John 5 through 10, you're going to find in front of you there a, a sermon card. It's called Marvel. And we called this sermon series in John 5 through 10 Marvel because of John 5.20. John 5.20 says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works then these he will show him, so that you may marvel. John wants you to marvel at Jesus' work so that you will call Jesus your master and Lord. That's really the whole purpose of this section. Marvel at Jesus' work 
so that you will call Jesus your master and Lord. In other words, this whole section is designed to show you the things that Jesus did in order to demonstrate that he really is the Son of God. Look at my works. They back up my claims. Who he is, what he came to do, and if we don't understand that, we might be like those art critics, those wine-tasting critics that look at Jesus and reach the wrong conclusion because we already have our own expectations of what he's supposed to be. So John wants to help you understand who Jesus is and why he came, and he thinks the best place for you to understand that is if you were to go back to Jerusalem with you, uh, with him. So Jerusalem here in verse 1, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the center of religious activity. Picture with me Jerusalem swelling with activity. Jerusalem right now, two to six times the normal capacity of people. For it was the time of a feast. And these feasts always kind of followed a week, a a weekly calendar, a cycle of six days of feasting and then one day in which there is a Sabbath. So for six days, people have been purchasing their sacrifice. Six days running, people have been offering a sacrifice to God. And the smell of that has been going up like an aroma throughout Jerusalem, celebrating that God is covenantly faithful to forgive our sins. And it all leads up to the final day, the Sabbath day, when all is made right with God, and then they sit and they enjoy His presence. That's the picture. Six days of sacrifice, all leading up to this big day in which you sit and you enter into God's rest. Sacrifice has been made. And now it's the seventh day, John tells us. It's the Sabbath. So now you got to picture the city has died down. The noise isn't there anymore. The activity has ceased. No one is headed home. No one is in motion. It is a quiet day in the city. Jesus makes his way to a place that has been the hub of activity. And the only ones that are there, left, yet impure, yet not made clean, yet unable to stand in God's presence with their sins relieved, are those whom the law says they have no rightful presence in and before God. They are staying physically and spiritually. It's manifested in the fact that the blind and the lame and the paralyzed are there. They're not able to enter into God's rest. They weren't able to make a sacrifice and go into the temple. And Jesus goes to them. And he zeroes in on one man, an invalid who's been there for 38 years. John sets this story up so that you can see that Jesus deliberately decides to go to Jerusalem Jesus deliberately decides to go to Jerusalem during a feast. Jesus directly finds this one particular man who is lame, all so that he can raise this issue of his identity by performing a work, a miracle on a Sabbath. Jesus is really just kind of forcing the issue of, who do you think I am, and why do you think I came here, and what am I doing? Let me put it to you as simply as I can. Jesus deliberately chose to heal on the Sabbath. He did that to show you who he is and the work he came to do. So faith family here, the story is here for you to know this. Jesus at work is God at work. That's the point of the sermon. Jesus at work is God at work. To see this Jesus at work, you will see that God at work. I'll put it to you negatively. If you miss Jesus at work, 
you will miss God's work in your life. For this Jesus is that God. That's the context. Let's jump into the conversation, verses 5 and 6. John 5, 5 through 6, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Jesus comes before this 38-year paralyzed invalid, right? And he says, do you want to get made well? It's like asking a parent, do you always want your children to obey? Yes. It's like going to someone unemployed here and asking, do you want a job? Of course. Right? Who would choose to remain impaired? He arrests this man's attention with that question. Do you want to get well? A question that's not really just for that man, though. It's a question for all of us this morning. Do you want to get well? A question that goes beyond this invalid's lame legs getting strong. It's a question that is far more about a healing that is beyond your common cold, COVID, or cancer. Jesus is ultimately concerned in this question with healing the brokenness of sin. But hold on to that, okay? We're going to get back to that. We're going to look at that in a a couple minutes. But for right now, this man doesn't get it. He doesn't even know who he is talking to. And so this invalid explains his view of the world. Look at verse 7. The sick, man, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps, before, another steps down before me. His helplessness is exposed, right? He says, I've been here decade after decade after decade. And while people come and go and purchase their animal sacrifices and get on with their life, he says, I'm continually impure, continually unclean. I have no access to this life or the future life to come because I can't get anybody to put me in the water. So I can't be made well. But Jesus is not really interested in his superstitious view of life. Instead, in verse 8, Jesus gives him three grammatical imperatives, three commands, three words that have Genesis 1-like creative force. What does Jesus say? Get up, take up, and walk. It's stunning. Jesus can do something just with a word, just like his Father can create the universe just with a word. Jesus at work is God at work. The cure happens here in verse 9, and at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Faith family, nothing is said about this man's faith. Jesus has nothing to draw this man's faith out. Nope. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. So what makes this man whole? What makes this man well? It's a voice of authority. Jesus' authority. Jesus' words are as powerful and effective and as life-giving as God's word is. It's a miracle that only God can do, proving that Jesus is in the same line of work as his Father is. If God can speak the world into existence, I can speak. Get up, take up, and walk. Done. Don't need you to believe. I just need to say it. 
the issue here is an issue of his identity. This Jesus is that God, for this Jesus is doing the work that only God can do. Well, John allows the story to finish before he tells you its significance. Here's the punchline, John 5, 9, the second half. Now that day was the Sabbath, right? It's the turning point in this story. It's really the turning point of the rest of the book. We have a Sabbath miracle here in John 5. We hear about this Sabbath miracle again in John 7. And then John kind of ends this whole section in John 5 through 10 with another Sabbath healing, all to force the issue that Jesus is God and he can do the work on the Sabbath because God has always been at work. He works on the Sabbath. He doesn't ever stop. And John bookends these chapters with that, all because Jesus wants to kind of set up this controversy raising the issue of who he is and what he came to do. Because there's no need for this miracle to have happened on that day, right? I mean, this man has already been there for 38 years. He is at the point of being institutionalized. He's been there so long. He would have been there tomorrow. Nothing urgent about it. But Jesus chooses this particular man at this particular place, on that particular day. Let me put it to you as clear as I can. Jesus does not perform this miracle although it was a Sabbath. No, Jesus performed this miracle because it was the Sabbath. Jesus did that to bring out a deeper truth. To set up a controversy with the religious critics of who he is, to raise the issue of his identity and his work. And this Dr. Jesus really kind of just touches on a very sore spot. Look at their response in verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. You'd think there'd be a celebration, don't you? But the religious police go to the guy who's been healed, and they basically say, what do you think you're doing? I mean, carrying your mat like that, don't you know what day it is? Look at verse 11. I would love for you to tell me this week how you read it. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I'm going to read it excited. Okay? But I, I really don't know. You tell me. Verse 11. But he answered them. The man who healed me. The man that said to me, take up your bed and walk. I don't know if he was excited or not. But verse 12, they ask him, who is the man? You know, it would have been great if they would have stopped there. Who is the man? It's a question that you should ask. Who is the man? Instead, though, they ask, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? They could have asked, who is the man who said to this paralyzed man, get up and walk? For the lame walking was a clear sign work to reveal the identity of the Messiah. It wasn't like Jesus was throwing them a curveball that they might miss on who the Messiah was. If you see the lame walking, you can be sure the Messiah is here. I mean, it was right down the middle. Listen to Isaiah 35. This is Isaiah 35, 3 through 6. If you're our guest, don't feel like you have to turn there. If you love Bible flipping, turn to the left, find Isaiah 35, 3 through 6. You have about three seconds. All right. <laughs> Isaiah 35, 3 through 6 says, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, 
Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What will happen? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When God shows up, that's what he's going to be doing. These religious critics should have known better. But these religious critics miss the point, and therefore they all miss the person. Look at verse 13. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Jesus hides identity until he reveals himself in the temple. Look at verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus met this man with a surprising question. Do you want to get well? Now he meets him again with a surprising warning. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus knows that there are things that are worse than 38 years of being an invalid. And what Jesus says is always true. It doesn't imply that there's a direct connection between this man's paralysis and his own sin. There's none of that here. But it is always compassionate to warn people against a spiritual danger as well as a physical danger. You do understand that love takes that form, don't you? Warning people about things worse than physical suffering is a loving thing to do. Warning people about the good and right and just judgment of God is a loving thing to do. My non-Christian friends that are here, we in love would like to warn you today. There is worse things than a lifetime spent in physical pain. One of those things is falling under the good and right judgment of God because of our sins. The only hope that we have is this very person, Jesus, who healed this man. Jesus is the one who can forgive your sins because he takes on the judgment that your sins deserve. And now he can offer you a new life, just like this man, a new life with God because he died on the cross. And he rose again victoriously, showing you the kind of life that you can have as you turn from your sins and put your trust in him. That's the eternal life that Jesus has to offer. So my non-Christian friend who's heard that warning, I think the question goes to you again. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? You know, when it comes to our physical state, we all hate our physical sickness. Seems like a ridiculous question. Do I want to be healed? Of course I want to be healed. But even though we hate our physical sickness, the Bible says by nature we all love our spiritual sickness. So it's a very meaningful question. Do you want to be made well spiritually? Because left to ourselves, we would never choose to forsake our own sin. Because sin is not just the actions that we do. Yes, Christians have a code of ethics, right, that we live by, but sin isn't just those actions. There's a deeper issue behind it for us. Sin, at its root, is the very desire that we all have, that we want to be God. 
That's at the root of it. That we get to be in charge of our lives, that we get to decide what is good and right for us. And we love the idea of being in charge. And we don't want to give up our post. By our very nature, we are quite happy with ourselves. So we need God to find us, just like Jesus did this man, take initiative with us, do the work for us. We need God to come in and change our desires that we would actually want to get well spiritually and hand over our posts to him and let him rule our lives for our abounding life and flourishing in him. But left to ourselves, we love ourselves. It's worth stopping here for a moment. How do you know that you love your sin? Would you pursue your sin if you could get away with it? With no consequence for you or for those you love. If Jesus showed up here today, made eye contact with you, pursued you, and singled you out and offered you and only you to heal you of just one thing, would your first thought be your sin? If healing physically was what Jesus was all about, he would not have remained, he could have remained hidden. I healed the guy, that's all I came to do, and now he disappears. If Jesus came to just heal the physical sickness, he would not have addressed this man's holiness. But the act of Jesus healing this man's sinful or sickness was to symbolize that God can heal your sin. In other words, Jesus conquers this man's sickness to show us that he can conquer your sin by saying the words, I forgive you, because of the work that he did, a work that only God can do. In other words, friends, there is a greater healing than just your physical healing. This man's physical healing was only a foretaste of the ultimate fulfillment. Christ has come to heal us spiritually, okay? This is where I would love to get intimate as your pastor. I'm going to try to do this without crying. My dear faith family, weary sojourners of this life, do not judge his healing in your life by how he is doing with your physical body. The evaluation of his authority and credentials as a physician is his ability to go where no doctor has ever been able to go before, the healing of your soul. I hope this brings you some encouragement to those who are struggling physically. You can trust that Jesus came to heal you, but he started with the one thing that if not healed, body and soul would be cast into hell forever. So think about it this way. You go into the emergency room and they perform triage. You have two bullet holes to the chest and you have a scrape on your finger. They bring you into the emergency room. The doctors are going to overlook the scrape on your finger from when you fell after getting shot two times in the chest. They're going to deal with the two shots to the chest first before dealing with your finger. You will get a Dora Explorer Band-Aid, okay? <laughs> and you'll be able to go out and be like, oh, it's, oh, it's. but that doesn't matter if you don't get the healing done to the chest. 
And so, my friends, Ray Weibel, Ben Cucci, Wendy Heath, Tracy, Enzo, Jackie's husband, who I'm looking forward to becoming your friend, and others, please do not judge God's healing of your body physically as whether or not he is worthy of your trust. He is wanting to heal your soul immediately and your body ultimately because we believe in a resurrection body to come. I know we want it to be switched, that we'd all want our bodies to be healed immediately and our souls ultimately. But Christ had to do kind of spiritual triage and take care of the greatest need first. And ultimately, he will heal your body. Christians have a hope, not of this world. What are you waiting for? Do you want to be healed? Could it be that Jesus is at work this morning? He could heal your soul immediately, and he can heal your body ultimately. Look at what happens in John 5, 15 through 17. This man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. He's driving the point home. Jesus could have said, Hey, guys, Hey, by your rules, he's not walking that far. He's not carrying his mat over his shoulder. He's not conducting any business. He's fine. He didn't break any Sabbath rules. He could have tried to argue with them on their terms. Jesus completely avoids that, and he just says, you know what, let me just brush the issue home. The reason why I'm allowed to do this work on the Sabbath is because God who rules the universe, who keeps it sustained for seven days and never slumbers and never sleeps, that God is who I am and I do his work. My father's been working, and so am I. The God who created the world, the God who sustains the world, the God who never slumbers or sleeps, who upholds the world by his very power. Jesus says he does the work of God to bring life and sustain life. What God does, I do. God said, let there be, and I say, get up, take up, and walk, and it is done. So do you understand his work that he came to do? Give life. Who can give life? Only one person. Do you understand who he is claiming to be? God. So we move from Jesus in a conversation to Jesus, the subject of controversy. Look at verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus moves from being conversationalist to a controversialist. Jesus opens with a question and the story ends with two accusations against Jesus. This is also why. Not just because he is a rule breaker, but he actually is a God claimer. At the beginning, he gives life because of his word. At the end of the story, people are livid because of his word. At the beginning of the story, he brings life. And at the end of the story, he has a death sentence on his life. He becomes a most wanted man in Jerusalem. So what keeps you from believing that Jesus at work is God at work? What keeps you from receiving Jesus instead of rejecting Jesus? Friends, do you see your need of his work? 
a work that only God can do, to bring you life, giving and sustaining it? Are you neglecting life with God by trying to keep it through all the rituals and religious regulations? It's not how you get life. Life alone is God's work, and it's his to give, and he gives it through Jesus' work on the cross. Could it be that God is at work here today, not just in giving us a beautiful day, maintaining the earth, the trees, the sun, the birds? Could God create life here today, spiritual life? Perhaps you've been here for 38 years or 38 minutes as an invalid. While everyone else is passing you by and you wonder, what is God up to? Is he ever going to work on my behalf? I wish he would do something for me. Well, God is doing something for you. If you'll recognize that God at work is Jesus at work. And Jesus comes to you now. He puts his eyes on you. And he's saying, do you want to be made well? Give me your belief in my word, and I will give you life. What are you waiting for? What are you counting on to make your life whole and complete? This man patiently waited 38 years for a spring to heal him. We laugh at his superstitious view of water. But you know what? Many of us are patiently waiting for something, on something that we are just as absolutely convinced that if we get, we will be whole and complete. If I just get a family, teenager, young adult, if I can just get out of this family, Not joking entirely. <laughs> Perhaps you're waiting for more money in the bank. But if you're like the majority of us here, you're just hoping to put enough money in the bank to put food on the table these days. Maybe you're waiting for the next promotion, the next degree program, the ability to go out on your own and start your own business. Perhaps you're waiting for the next sexual encounter, the next hit from drugs, the next drag of a smoke. I don't know what you're counting on to make your life better. Whole and complete. Whatever it is, it will no more give you life than that water was going to give that man life. Do you understand your need for life? Will you trust his provision for life? Jesus Christ alone gives life because Jesus is doing a work that only God can do. God gives life and he sustains life. And this Jesus is that God. Faith family, a little application for you in closing. Can anyone tell that you have been given this new life? If you're part of our faith family and you know yourself to be a Christian, you should not stop talking to each other in here for their encouragement and to others that don't know him yet about this new life you have. If you believe that Christ actually is who he claims to be God, how could you live differently, not with the fear of man, but for the approval of the only one whose opinion matters of you, that this Jesus is that God, that you'd be wholeheartedly sold out for him, enjoying talking about him to each other for encouragement, our testify night on Wednesday nights, or to people that don't know you yet, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family and friends. You have life. 
And it would be great to talk about the one that you know that gave you that life. Let's stand and sing, yet not I, but Christ in me. You'll need him to do that. So we'll sing about it now and ask the Lord to take these truths, put them in our heart, keep them in our mind as we sing them. May you memorize them. I pray it'll be an encouragement to you this week.